Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Dr. Ashley Cross. Dr. Cross is the executive director of The Hub 585, which is an organization that supports foster youth aging out of foster care in Rochester, New York. Well, hi, Dr. Cross, or may I call you Ashley in this conversation? Absolutely. Welcome. I'm so glad you could be part of this podcast series. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. It's Friday. It's a beautiful day, so I'm it is. doing very well. <laughs> Excellent. I love Fridays too, don't we all? Well, you know, I love Fridays, but I love Mondays because I love what I get to do for work. So, Oh, well, I love that yeah. attitude. <laughs> <laughs> That's fabulous. Well, you know what? The first thing I'd like to talk about today, Ashley, is your background and what was your journey in life? What brought you to the point where you're working with your organization, the Hub 585? Yeah, Lynn, that's a great question. So I actually, I was introduced to the foster care system actually by way of my grandmother. I am a third generation foster parent. So my grandmother did foster care for 30 something years before she retired and actually started a child placement agency in Denver, Colorado, which I always tell people that was like my first job, right? Mm -hmm. When I was in middle school, I was her, you know, I would answer her phone calls and I got to see my grandmother start this job placement agency from nothing to it being a place where 300 kids were placed into foster care. And my mom worked there. All my aunts and uncles worked there. Both of my parents and all of my aunts and uncles have actually done foster care. So I just grew up with foster aunts, uncles, and brothers. And so when I went to college and I was doing my bachelor's in psychology, I really actually wanted to become a guardian at Lightham. I wanted to go to law school and really work on more of the legal aspects of it just because I had grown up with foster siblings. I just, I didn't necessarily want to do foster care, but, you know, after I did a missions trip and several other things that really kind of put me on the path of saying, Hey, I actually really think that this is where I should be. So I actually started the community supported foster home for girls aging out of the foster care system and or experiencing homelessness in Tulsa. And I lived in that home for four years. And that's where I fostered about 20 girls that were aging out of the foster care system over the span of about four years. And so in 2016, I got married and relocated here to Rochester. And as soon as I got here, you know, the first thing that I wanted to do was figure out how could I still keep this dream of creating this community of hope for kids in foster care. How could I keep that alive, even though I relocated and moved clear across the U.S.? And so came here, and after kind of settling myself, I started the Hub 585, which now has 12 employees, about eight youth programs, and we're centrally located here, and we're able to really do the work that we do to provide a relationship-centered community for system-involved youth and families. That is quite a journey, especially the background that you come from. Not many people have that much exposure to that side of foster care. Many people who start nonprofits have been foster youth. Yeah. It certainly happens, but it's not as often that you have someone like yourself whose family really embraced this life of supporting youth like that. Yeah. I always tell people like it was a part of my upbringing. I was taught that you don't just open your heart to these kids. You open your home. 
you know, for me, it's really like, I think my life story just points back to just me being designed to do this work. I really, yeah. this is my purpose. Wow. And did you ever end up doing any like CASA or GAL work? So I was a CASA worker and I was on the board of CASA here in Rochester for about two years. Okay. And so I was a CASA for some time. I love the mission of CASA. Oh, I do too. You use the phrase community of hope, which caught my attention. Why that particular phrase? When I lived in my girls' home in Tulsa, and I spent a lot of time, like I'm sure most people who work with any marginalized population, and I spent a quite a bit of time asking myself, like, why do some of these kids experience the same types of trauma, but they respond to them different, right? Some of them, you know, use it to say, hey, I would never go down that path. And then some of them go down the same exact path that landed their parents in the position that they're in. Like, why? And I also spend a lot of time advocating for young people in the school system. A lot of my foster daughters at the time would get in a lot of trouble at school. So that's actually what led me to going back and doing my EDD because I said, I want to start a a school at some point, like a small private school just for kids in foster care. And so while I was doing my doctoral studies, I was actually in search of getting an answer to that. Why do some kids make these decisions and others make other decisions? And at first I thought it was like Angela Duckworth's grit theory. Like it's really passion and persistence. It's pull up your boots. They got to make good decisions. They have to work hard. And the more that I started to look into that theory, it never took into account trauma, never took into account adverse childhood experiences. And so what I did find that did take into account ACEs was the theory of hope that was coined back in 1991 by C.R. Snyder. And so when I found, when I was doing my literature review and I started to look at the theory of hope and how it was tested on so many different populations who were experiencing trauma, I said, I think that this is the answer. I think that this is what kids need. They need hope and not hope in the context of an emotion, right? Where we say, oh, we think that we see a smile on their face. We think they have hope, but I'm talking about hope as a science. And so when I was doing my dissertation work, I researched 30 boys that were in foster care. And the major theme was that my high hope boys had relationships. They could name the adults who meant a lot to them. They could name the adults that they knew cared about them. And that was the most significant indicator of of hope is they had relationships. So here at the Hub, that is what we do. We do relationship-centered programming. Everything that we do for young people and their families is with the goal of pulling them into our community. And the reason for that is because we know the power and the healing power of relationships. And we know that a lot of these families are in the position that they're in because they lack relationships. It's not just that they're in poverty, but they're in poverty relationally and they're in poverty, you know, financially or resource or, you know, lacking resources. So that's why we focus on relationships here. We believe that relationships are really what heal people. And I'm curious, do you, from your studies, do you believe that, is it that hope drives relationships or having relationships drives hope? Yeah. So that's a good question. So the let me say this, the definition, the scientific definition of hope, which Dr. Chan Hellman out of University of Oklahoma kind of coined is the belief that your future will be better than your past and that you have the power to make it so. And so hope actually has a formula. It is goal setting plus agency plus pathways. And so relationships are what 
inherently give someone a hopeful belief. So if somebody is low in agency, then we know that that means that they need people around them to encourage them and to support them so that they can increase in their agency, their belief that they can achieve their goals. If someone is low in pathways, then that means that they need people around them to help them think strategically about their life and their goals. So pathway thinking is that's the ability to get from point A to point B. But if I don't know how to get from point A to point B, how can I get there? It has to people around me to help me strategically think. It is the relationships that help to produce, to cultivate, and sustain hope. I know the research shows the criticality of relationships with young people in foster care and the correlation between that and success as they transition into adulthood. It really is the key factor is those relationships. Yep. Yep. I heard Barbara Sorrell out of Oklahoma say that these kids were broken because of relationships. These kids are only going to be healed because of relationships. And so even here, we tell people, I tell my staff all the time, do we want these kids to be employed? Absolutely. Do we want them to have their own apartments? Absolutely. But more than anything, they need relationships because if we didn't learn anything from COVID, we know that our lives can change overnight. (laughs) Yeah. COVID taught us that <laughs> things can change. You can be stable one day and you can lose everything the next day. Right. It's possible. But what happened during that time, it was the people who had a safety net in their community, through their community. And these kids, if they don't have that, then it doesn't matter what resources we help them obtain. It's do they have the relationships to help sustain that? Mm-hmm. And you mentioned resiliency. What is the connection between relationships and resiliency? Because I've always had an impression that there is some level of resiliency that's just inherent in young people. I know it can be fostered, and I know that there are environmental influences, of course. But what would be your explanation of the connection between relationships and resiliency? I imagine it's similar to hope. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I was actually going to say that the literature shows us that hope is a protective factor for resilience. Okay. So there, yeah, you can't be resilient without hope. And the way that I always explain it is resilience is the ability to move forward. It's a bounce back factor. Hope is the ability to just stand up, right? So when we start pushing people and kids to be resilient, before we push hope, we're saying walk before you even stand up. And hope also, I think, gives you maybe a picture of where you want to go. That's exactly what it does. Yeah. There are six principles of hope, and one of them is imagination. It's the instrument of hope. Six principles, and that is one of them. I can't get somewhere that I cannot conceptualize or imagine in my head, which again is the power of relationships. The research shows here that within Rochester, kids living in poverty, they never leave within three to five miles of their zip code. Three to five miles, Lynn, like that is so hard to even think about. Especially in today's day and age, so many people are mobile and moving. Yeah. yeah. It is surprising. Yeah. But if we know that, then it would make sense as to why they're behaving the way that they're behaving, because they're only seeing the people that are around them behave in certain ways. They're not exposed to anything else. And they can't picture a life outside of what they already have around them. Absolutely. This is fascinating. I tell you, I could take the whole hour talking about (laughs) hope. I am so on board. We actually just built a course about what is CASA. It's actually an overview of the CASA organization and what they do. 
And there was a study about the connection between the CASA relationship and hope that we included in the course that was so interesting. So this is something that's been brought to my mind recently through the development of that course. So I appreciate you spending a little time on that. But let's go back to relationships and maybe we can segue into understanding what the Hub 585 does by asking the question, so how do you help build those relationships? Do you have a mentor program? Do you have coaches? Is that the first thing that you do before you do anything else with them? Or is it all happening at the same time? So if you can help explain what it is that your organization does, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we do it all at the same time. You know, we kind of use what we say is like a three-tier approach. So first tier or tier one are all those physical needs. And tier two are all of those relational needs. And tier three, well, that's where we really start advocating for maybe adoption or foster care if prevention efforts don't keep kids out of care. And so we have one of our programs, it's actually our flagship program. It is the first program that we've ever had under the hub, which is called the Care Portal, which is a national initiative, actually. And it's a technology that CPS workers, we have about 50 CPS workers here in Monroe County that have access to the Care Portal. And they can be out for an investigation and say, hey, we have to remove this child if mom doesn't correct A, B, and C. They put those into the care portal. The care portal then shoots out to our network. We have churches and we have community organizations that collectively make up a community response team of about 500 responders. All of those responders get that need on their email at the same exact time in real time. And all they have to do is hit, I can meet that need. It puts them in connection with the CPS worker who puts them in connection with the family. So that's one of the first things that we have here. And then we do have what's called the Life Launch Mentoring Program. That is where we are committed to making sure that every single young person ages 13 and up in the foster care system has durable and committed relationships. And so that is a mentorship program. What we do not do is one-on-one mentoring. That's again, we're trying to make sure we know that these kids are poor in relational capital. And so we're trying to make sure that we can actually double the committed adults in their life. And so we make sure that young people have groups of mentors of at least two, no more than four adults who work together to help them establish their goals and move towards independent living. You know, I'll jump in here and just say the idea of group mentoring is something that I've believed for a long time is potentially such a great solution. One, for the reason you're saying, the social capital and building more relationships instead of just the one. But I've always thought about like big brothers, and big sisters, right? Mm-hmm. You have a relationship with one person. And what happens if that one person gets married and moves away right? or has to leave for a job? Well, that young person is out of luck because that adult who they've spent so much time with is now gone. If you have a group then if somebody does have to leave because life happens, you still have those other relationships to help you get through that and to provide consistency in that. And hopefully someone else can come in and and fill that void. But I've always felt for that consistency of support and relationships that having some sort of group approach would be ideal. And so I'm really happy to hear that you're doing that. And how is that working then? So it is very complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) But it works well. It's hard because you have to keep the adults on the same page. And the biggest issue that we find, Lynn, is the scheduling, right? Because instead of being like one youth and one adult, it's two to four adults trying to make sure all their schedules line up with the kid, with the young person. And so that's the biggest thing. But 
are mentors, they encourage because they have each other to encourage. They're able to problem solve together, right? So if we know that a kid, and this happened, we had a young lady who we knew that she was put into foster care. She was returned home with mom. The mentors did everything that they could to support mom. Mom was still very much unhealthy. And we knew that this young person was going to end up in foster care again. And so the mentors were able to support mom and explain to mom what was happening but they were also able to work together because that's a lot for, that would be a lot for one person to navigate through that type of situation. They were also able to support each other and problem solve and make sure that she felt, her and mom felt very much supported during that really hard time for their family again. Yeah. I think with groups too, you also have each, the kind of the collective social capital of the people who are on that mentoring team and their own expertise, areas of expertise. Right. So you have a variety of different skills and just knowledge about the world, different backgrounds, hopefully diverse backgrounds. And I think that also lends itself to being able to support young people better. Because if you have somebody on the mentoring team who has a good relationship with an auto mechanic, say, and the young person wants to explore that as a possible career. Well, there you go. That person has that connection to somebody who might be able to let the young person observe for a day in a mechanic shop or whatever. I think that's a great advantage. Well, and your mentor group can be so diverse and learn so much, right? You could have a 20-year-old and a 60-year-old woman mentoring (laughs) a young woman together, completely two different stages of life. And that's amazing for a young woman to be able to have the the energy of a 20-year-old and the wisdom of a 60-year-old guiding her, right? Right, right. And then you also get to have married couples, which we have that pretty often, married couples that will decide to mentor together. Then now some of these young people get to see a healthy marriage. Yeah. You know, so yeah. Is it easier to find mentors when you present this group mentoring approach? It actually is. That Mm -hmm. crossed my mind that somebody, oh, I'm not doing it on my own. I feel better now. Yep. And actually that's how we recruit. So I would say, Hey Lynn, you know, look within your network, you know, you and your best friend, if you guys are, if you're already a part of a small group of women and you guys meet every other Thursday for dinner, all I'm asking for you to do is now just drop a kid in the middle of that every (laughs) once in a while. And it's going to make you so much more comfortable. I always tell people like, don't look at it as now you're adding an extra thing to your life. I'm adding someone to my life that now I want to integrate into the things that I'm already doing. Yeah. Yeah. You're already a part of a church group. You're already a part of a sorority. You're already a part of your Mm -hmm. family. Like Mm -hmm. there are all these things, like you can just kind of integrate this young person into what you've already got going on. Yeah. Yeah. So the mentors have, I would think group events with the young person, but they also do things individually with the young person. So we steer away from one-on-one stuff okay? um, for several reasons. One, for the safety of the young person and the safety of the mentors. Now, what we do is one year of formal mentoring. So they're not allowed to do one-on-one outings within that first year. But for example, we have a young lady that just kind of graduated because she's been with her group for a year. And her mentor came into my office actually today and was like, yeah, we're going to do it informal for the next year, you know, moving forward because- we just organically mesh. And now we don't want you guys checking, you know, like telling us that we can't hang out with her on our own and stuff like that. Right. But it took a year for them to establish that level of trust with each other. And now we're comfortable saying you guys do whatever you guys are now in each other's lives for hopefully forever. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that trust is a big element. And that takes different lengths of time for different youth. Yep, yep. But sometimes it does take months. Yeah, but we just feel like it's the safest thing to say, hey, for the year that we're involved, you guys are kind of doing it a little bit more in a formal approach. Okay, that makes sense. Did you want to share any other programs that you do? Because I know you do a variety of different things, you said. Yeah, yeah. So two others. During the pandemic, we decided to financially support every single young person aging out of foster care. And that started off with just saying, we want to give every single person, every single young person in our county $500 as they age out of foster care. Wow. Um, And we actually have a local donor that was like, hey, we would love to help you guys keep this going. And so now we're able to give every single young person aging out of the foster care system up to $2,400. So that is like our cash assistance program. But the funding is large enough to also be able to help with prevention stuff too. So we're able to work with birth families on if they need some rental assistance, things like that to prevent their children from going into care or to bring their children home from care. So we do have a cash assistance program for our system involved young people and their families. And then our newest thing that I'm really excited about is in September, we will be launching the first kind of professional foster home here in Monroe County. And so we purchased a home earlier this year, and now we're in the middle of renovating it. And we've hired a full-time foster parent who will be living in the home, and her full-time job will be to prepare six young women for adulthood, to prepare to age out of foster care. We're doing this in response to knowing that we have kids in Monroe County that age out at 18 knowing that they're not ready and that they really need until they're 21. But if they don't have a placement at 21, I mean at 18, then they don't get to sign themselves back in. We want this home to be a place where they can sign themselves back in and have additional time added to prepare for adulthood. And hopefully, you know, through funding, we can purchase some apartments. So when they turn 21, they can move into the apartment. But the thought is that CPS will send them around 16 and they can stay until they're 21. And then it's a pilot program for the first two years. So we're working with some evaluators here to develop an evaluation plan and make sure that we're measuring the success of the young people so that hopefully we can build a case for doing this and replicating this model. Hmm. Okay. You know, we're going to have a podcast later on this fall. It's going to be a, a conversation podcast between three organizations that do transitional living. We're going to have a discussion about the different transitional living models that are out there. And there are quite a few. And we just had a, the AOI community. We had a community chat where we had a conversation about how to develop relationships with landlords, because that's a way to potentially start getting additional housing for young people if you don't have the good fortune of being able to have your own home like you're starting or to build, say, an apartment or two or five. So working with landlords is another avenue. I wanted to throw that out there. All these different transitional living models are really interesting to me because every single one can be effective with certain youth. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You need to probably implement a few different ones. And we do have a good relationship with about, only about two or three landlords that take the risk and, and move our young people in. But that's what we started when we started the TAP Legacy Fund, the cash assistance program. That was the first thing I said was, hey, we can't just be passing out cash for, you know, first and last month's rent and we're setting them up for failure if we're not helping them identify good landlords. Because there are times that we see our young people and even families be taken advantage of, you know, we'll give them cash assistance and then they'll tell us, well, now CPS isn't or DHS isn't going to help us with rent because our landlord doesn't have a certificate of occupancy. 
And it's like, oh man, that's a bad situation to be in. So we're trying to make sure that we can build that network of reputable landlords with good integrity, because if not, we already know that the type of advantage that our young people could be taking advantage of. Yeah, I like that. It's the first time I've heard somebody express that they do that, not to say that others don't, but mm-hmm. I think that's such a great initiative is to identify not just landlords, but the good ones. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to yeah. vet them, to curate them, if you will. Yep. Yep. Excellent. So you've expressed or you've shared about four different programs. And I just want to clarify. So you've mentioned that you work with families. You have quite the broad mission or target groups that you work with. You don't just work with foster youth. Is that what I'm understanding? So we work with system-involved youth. And so the reason that we don't just say foster youth is because we have a summer camp, which I should have mentioned, a summer camp for system-involved young people which is all about challenge by choice. It's amazing. We partnered with Alliance of Hope in California for that. And we find that some of our kids are not in foster care anymore. They are reunified with their birth families, but they were in foster care. So now we just have system involved that they've had some type of system involvement because they might no longer be in foster care. Got it. Yeah. That makes sense. And what year did you start? The hub started in 2018, but our programs really did not start up and running until about 2021. We started the care portal in 2019 and we ran that for two years before we started any programming. So you were actually launching in the midst of COVID. Yeah. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why we were like, we have to provide some type of cash to these young people who are aging out during global pandemic that has us all, you know, kind of struggling. Wow. I really do like what you're doing. I like the focus on hope and the relationships that you have here. How many young people have you helped so far? And I know that might be tough to judge, but uh, do you have a sense of about the numbers of young people whose lives you've touched? Yeah, close to about probably, oh man, I'd say about 17 to 1800. Through the CARE portal, in January, the CARE portal, we celebrated 1,000 children served. And then we have a Saturday skill building program and music therapy for kids that are in emergency foster care. We see about 10 to 15 of them weekly, as well as the kids at our mentorship program and then the young people at our summer camp. So yeah, around 17 to 1,800. Wow, that's fantastic. And, And while we're thinking about it, how do people find the CARE portal? Yeah. So if you are interested in starting the CARE portal in your area, you can go to careportal.org because again, it's a national initiative and there are several agencies that run CARE portals in their counties. Okay. What is your website in case somebody wanted to learn more? I don't know, maybe donate something to you. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) www.thehub585.org is our website. Well, I want to make sure that we have a little bit of time to talk about the opportunities for the foster youth system, right? Which is very large and complex and many different levels. There's federal, state, local. From your perspective, how do you think the foster care system could improve how they're helping young people prepare for adulthood? You know, I think it goes back, Lynn, to the conversation we had earlier around relationships. 
And I understand that like CPS workers are very busy and they're very busy just trying to make sure that our kids have basic needs and that they're safe. But I think prioritizing relationships, it's really the only way by partnering with our local organizations that are committed to youth development and thinking outside of the box, thinking about how can we make sure that our young people have the relationships that they need? How do we empower the community to respond to these young people? And that's a big deal as well. We can always say, well, we need to start these mentorship programs, but how do we make sure that their mentors are trauma-informed and hope-centered and given the resources and the support that they need so that they can stay in the game as mentors? Right. Because mentorship, it's really hard and it can be very scary for people who are already scared of teenagers, right? And so we put a lot of effort into supporting and caring for our mentors and our staff, but definitely our volunteers who maybe don't always feel competent and like they have the skill that they need to give the young people the care that they need. Focusing in on both of those, partnering with local agencies that are committed to the well-being and the development of our young people, and then also asking young people what they need giving them much more agency over their lives than we have. I think we would be very surprised at what we hear if we would sit down and actually listen to our kids, listen to what it is that they need. That's actually how the Life Launch program came about, is we brought about 20 kids to the hub and we just asked them questions about what they need. And then every question that we asked, they almost all of them almost started an answer with someone who can. So to me, that was an indicator that all of their needs could be met through relationships. So if I said, so tell me the skills that you feel like you need to prepare to age out of foster care. Well, we need somebody to teach us how to change a tire. I need somebody to teach me about taxes. That's what they were inherently telling us is that they need adults to teach them and to be patient enough with them while they learn. Right. I think the partnership is really one of the best ways, you know, because the system is so, it's a big ship to have to turn. Mm -hmm. I think those partnerships, like you're saying, may be a really good way to go. And and there are certainly partnerships that already exist. In fact, I was going to ask you, if do you have partnerships with your local, county, state agencies? Absolutely. We have a very close partnership with CPS. I actually go out regularly with the director. (laughs) We'll meet up and say, hey, it's happy hour time. Let's go sit down and talk, right? Because I want to constantly hear, because again, one of the things that we could also do is support CPS and we could support workers who are burnt out. And what I don't do here is I don't let people paint bad narratives about CPS workers because they're trying their hard. And most, many of them are trying. Now we know that with any profession, there are a few rotten potatoes, but that's not the case for majority of them. And so how do we partner with them to make sure that they're successful? Because if CPS workers feel supported, then our kids are going to feel supported and they're going to feel cared for. And so I sit with the director of CPS on a consistent basis. I say, what are your workers feeling? What do you guys need? How can we support you? And we respond when we, our Saturday skill building program, even though we have kids that are coming in, they're actually not the customer. That program was birthed out of sitting with CPS workers and them telling us, I think we're going to lose some of our best foster homes because they're burnt out because they have no respite. They have no respite. And I said, well, would it be helpful 
if the foster parents who are fostering teenagers could drop their kids off at the hub every Saturday from 10 to 2. And that's what we do every single Saturday. But again, that was because I want to make sure that we're making sure that foster parents are not burnt out, CPS workers are not burnt out, because if so, our kids are going to suffer. Did you initiate this partnership? Did they initiate the partnership? What would be your advice? Yeah, I initiated the partnership and it did not go well at first. (laughs) (laughs) I had to be very hopeful with a lot of resilience because they were not open at first. And rightfully so, I was new to the area. My organization had zero credibility. Nobody who knew we were. We just filed our our 501c3 (laughs) and they had no reason to trust me. And so I sat down with them and I pitched them my big vision for foster care. And they're like, okay, great. And I talked to them about the care portal. And they said that there is no way we're going to let CPS workers put the needs of families in a technology that shoots out to random community members. It's not going to happen. And the commissioner at the time was actually very, very for it. Like she was like, we could, we should try this. Her workers were not there and they thought it was going to create more work and everything. And I had to court CPS for one year before they pulled the plug on the care portal. So patience and persistence. Yeah. And what I also did was I said, well, how about we hop on a Zoom call with the folks in Texas that are doing the care portal and have been doing it for four years? Why don't we hop on the call with the people in Kansas, the folks in Kansas that created the model? And let's talk about your concerns around confidentiality and security. What are your concerns? And let's address all of them head on. I gave them no excuse and it ended up really working out. And now they love it. They love the care portal. CPS workers put care portal needs in every single day. I love that success story. And I think that there are a lot of other nonprofits that have developed really positive relationships with their agencies as well. I think that there's still a huge gap across the country. But there are more and more nonprofits being started. The awareness around young people aging out of foster care is growing. Yeah. I think the interest in helping is growing from what I'm seeing. Mm -hmm. And so I think the encouragement that I would give based on what you're sharing is if you have a nonprofit or you want to start one, building those relationships can be so helpful, primarily to the youth, Mm -hmm. but also to you and your nonprofit. And to them. So I absolutely see it as a win, win, win. Yeah, it definitely is. And that's really my thought process behind all this is how can we get every single person that would be involved in a CPS case to win? From the worker to the CPS worker, to the birth family, to the foster family. We have a mentorship program for new foster families. Okay. We mentor new foster parents. We put them in a cohort of three, they have a hope coach, which is a veteran foster parent that helps to build their agency in the first three months of being a foster parent. Wow. That's great. And that's a relationship with Monroe County. We work with the organization or the company that helps recruit foster families. They recruit them and then send them to us to support them. So we've really thought about, you know, who are all the major stakeholders and how do we make sure everybody is succeeding? It has to be a win-win. Yeah, absolutely. And I imagine because of the way that you've built this relationship and also built your credibility, that referrals and things like that probably just come so easily. Yeah, they do. We don't have to typically look for referrals. I really like that focus because again, I'm sure there are others out there doing similar kinds of things as far as building relationships, but I think it's the mindset 
that you're saying of how can we help you, not just the youth, but the social workers and the foster parents and the families, you know, how can we help them so that we can all partner together to help these young people? Yeah. That is a fantastic mindset. I like that. Thank you. (laughs) Well, I see that we are at the end of our time together and I wish we could continue talking. Maybe we'll have you back if you're open to it to continue the conversation about hope because I think it's oh, absolutely it really is so important and resiliency and so forth. So I'll follow up with you on that. But thank you so much for participating in our podcast and for doing the work that you're doing in New York and Rochester. And I just I wish all the best for you there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Lynn. And thank you for the work that you guys are doing over at the Aging Out Institute. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I think that I will thank you. I will thank everyone who has listened to this podcast to the very end. We put out a podcast every couple of weeks or so. You can find them on pretty much any podcast distribution platform. You could also go to our website at agingoutinstitute.org and just click on the podcast link. Thanks very much for listening. Until next time.
Thank you. 